All right, let's get started. Welcome to Sunday School. We come to the book of Nahum this morning and God's prophecy regarding Assyria. The title of today's class is God Judges Nations. Last week, we saw how God judged Israel. Whom did God bring to destroy Israel and carry its people away? Assyria, same nation we're talking about today. The capital of Israel, Samaria, was besieged for three years. What date BC did it fall? 722 or 721 BC, around that time. Why did this judgment come upon Israel? Yeah, Joe. Yeah, it was that they were sinful, they were idolatrous, and they refused to repent. But it wasn't that Israel refused to serve God at all, but as we saw last week, that they sought to serve other gods at the same time as God. But does God, what does God think about this syncretistic or divided devotion? Yeah, Roy. Yeah, it's spiritual adultery. If you serve God alongside other gods, then you're not really serving God at all. It is you serve God only or you do not serve him at all. He hates divided devotion. It's impossible. It is blasphemous to him. And so we need to learn from Israel's um, from Israel's sin, unless we serve and worship God alone, we do not serve or worship God at all. We are just as much under the judgment of God as if we had openly repudiated God if we live in such a way. Let us heed the warning given to us from Second Kings about Israel. Of course, the people who came into the land after Israel did the exact same thing. Questions or comments about last week's lesson? Okay, well, Assyria was God's agent of judgment on Israel. But God also had a word of prophecy to speak to Assyria after the judgment of Israel had taken place. And this prophecy is what we're going to be looking at today. The book of Naaman, Nahum, in which this prophecy appears, is only three chapters. We're actually going to look at the whole book together today. But even though this is a fairly short amount of text, there's a lot to say about it. So we're going to be... Hearing a lot of information today, please hold your extra questions or comments till the end. Here's our outline for today's class. We're going to orient ourselves to the historical situation of Nahum. We're then going to observe the three chapters in Nahum. Then we'll ask and answer a number of inter interpretation questions, and then we'll finally consider application based on what we learn from God in his book of the prophecy of Nahum. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would... Make this word very clear to us. Help us to understand it and help us to apply it. Help me to be able to explain it well. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to the book of Nahum. It's on page 930 in the Pew Bibles if you're using those. If not, just keep going towards the end of the Old Testament. Nahum is one of the last books in the Old Testament. After Jonah, after Micah, you find Nahum. It comes right before Habakkuk and Zechariah. So page 930 in the Pew Bible. We're going to read this book in sections. But before we do so, let's orient ourselves to the historical situation by just reading verse 1 and then talking about the context. So Nahum 1.1. I'll read. The oracle of Nineveh. 
the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. I notice the word oracle here. This word is also translated burden or prophecy. This is a supernatural revelation given by God as a commission to his prophet to declare to God's intended audience. Well, what is the intended audience? It says here the oracle of Nineveh. We're going to see that as we go through this book, this oracle is not just about Nineveh, but it is actually addressed to Nineveh. Nineveh is the primary audience. What's significant about the city of Nineveh? Yeah. Not Babylonian, but yes, Jonah went to the same city. It was the um, it was a city that he had gone to and preached to, and in which the people had repented. Why else is Nineveh significant? Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So here's our map again of the Assyrian Empire after 671 BC. It's all that light and dark green. Uh, Nineveh, I don't have my laser pointer with me right now, but Nineveh is in the northeast section. Babylonia is that southeast section, but Nineveh is the northeast section, and that's where Assyria originates, but its empire spread um, quite far. Anyways, but Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. It was the same one that Jonah, is the same place that Jonah had visited. And while this prophecy is addressed to just Nineveh, it really encompasses the whole Assyrian empire. Just as when God was prophesying against Samaria, he was really prophesying to all Israel. When he prophesies against the capital, it has implications for the rest of the nation. So it is here for Assyria. We're talking to Nineveh, we're talking to, Nineveh, or to Assyria in this book. God sent Jonah to Nineveh somewhere between 800 to 750 B.C. And that ministry to Nineveh and Assyria really happened before Assyria's great expansion as an empire. Assyria has existed for a long time, but they, they were big, they contracted, and before they got big again, that's when Jonah went to them. But a considerable amount of time has gone by since Jonah. This prophecy to Nineveh comes at the height of its power. Assyria now dominates, this is basically, the, the territory in green is the situation in the book of Nahum. Assyria now dominates the Middle East. It has gained control over Egypt as well. Egypt was their rival in the southwest. They now control Egypt along with Babylonia and all, uh, all the central Middle East. And because, and, and we get this from a little bit from the details in this book, as we'll see, since Assyria is in this state, we can date the prophecy of Nahum to sometime around 650 BC. So this is about 100 to 150 years after Jonah. Things have changed a little bit in Assyria and Nineveh. Certainly things have changed in the empire. So here's the historical situation of Assyria. But what about Nahum? It says this is the, the rest of verse 1 says, this is the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. Who exactly is Nahum? Well, the Bible tells us basically nothing about Nahum. Though the name Nahum appears in the genealogy of Christ in Luke 3, it's not the same Nahum. can't be the same Nahum. And we're told that Nahum is an Elkishite, but even that information is ambiguous. Is that the place of his birth? Is that the place of his ministry? And even if we could determine that, where is Elkosh? We don't know. Some suggest that it could be um, in Iraq, which would be in Assyria. There's a, a site there today, or a ruin, or I don't know if it's a town or a ruin, but El Al Kush, which kind of sounds like Elkosh, so maybe that's the one. 
think they think perhaps maybe it was in Galilee, perhaps Capernaum. Capernaum means the city of Nahum, but it could also simply mean the city of comfort because that's what Nahum means. Or maybe in Judah, because we're going to see in a moment this book has some things to say about Judah. So he could have been an Israelite, a descendant of an Israelite captive in Assyria, or he could have been a prophet from Judah who just happened to deliver a message to Assyria. So we don't really know much about Nahum, but that's actually not super important. More important than who Nahum is or where he's from is the message that Nahum has for Assyria. Let's now start looking at that message. We're going to read the first section of chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. So find that verse and follow along with me as I read. His prophecy begins. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Boat. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Okay, let's observe some details of this first section. What do verses 2 to the beginning of verse 3 declare to us about God? It does say he's slow to anger, but that's not the main idea of verses 2 to the beginning of verse 3. There's another, another quality of God that's highlighted. Yeah, Roy. That's right, right. We're seeing lots of emphasis in these first couple of verses on God's wrath. He's avenging and wrathful, takes vengeance on his adversaries, his enemies. If you're an enemy of God, his wrath is great. He's slow to anger, but if you're an enemy, his wrath is great. He will not leave you unpunished if you are an enemy, if you are guilty. What kind of images do we then see involving God in the end of verse 3 down to verse 5? A series of pictures, but what do they all have in common? God's great power is manifest where? On the earth. It's as if the earth cannot handle the overwhelming power of God. He just um, says something or he moves into an area and the mountains quake, the hills dissolve, the, um, he, the sea becomes dry, totally, or rivers just totally disappear as soon as he comes near. That's the overwhelming power of God. We get pictures involving the great power and authority of God. Now there's a question, two questions in verse 6. What's the expected answer to those questions? 
No one. The expected answer is no one. Who can stand before his indignation, his wrath? Who can endure his burning anger? You see his power. You see his great wrath. No one. No one can stand before it. Then there's a contrast presented in the last two verses of this section, verses 7 and 8. What's the contrast? For which people? That's right. So to those who trust in God, this great, powerful, avenging, wrathful God, he's a place of protection. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble for those who he knows take refuge in him. But in contrast to that, what are we told in verse 8? How does God respond to his enemies? Yeah, Ron. Yeah, he's going to consume them. With an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. Wherever they are, a flood will find them. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. We have this contrast. On the one hand, those who take refuge in God, he's their protection. But on the other hand, his enemies will be pursued as with a flood even into darkness. And in all of this, nothing has yet been said about Nineveh or specifically against any nation. But that changes in the next section. Let's now look at verses 9 to 15. We've seen this first section, some truths, but let's see what the rest of the chapter has to say. Verse 9. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. Like tangled thorns and like those who are drunken with their drink, they are consumed as stubble completely withered. From you has gone forth one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no longer. So now I will break his yoke bar from upon you, and I will tear off your shackles. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. All right, let's make some more observations. There appears to be a contradiction in this section, and resolving this contradiction I think will be helpful before we observe further. What's the apparent contradiction? Yeah, Craig. Well, we'll get to that. You mentioned that God uses Syria to judge Israel, but now he's judging Assyria. We'll talk a little bit about that issue a little bit later on. But, but here I want to focus on the fact that we have promises that seem to contradict each other. On the one hand, or well, let's, what are the two promises that seem to contradict each other? Yeah, Joe. 
Okay. Okay. All right. You've got you've got to where where I was. Um, what I wanted to point out from the text, which is we seem to have promises of restoration and freedom from oppression, but also promises of total destruction and, aware, uh, and prophecies of judgment. Is that referring back to Nineveh's first experience with God? Well, I think the, the better way to, or to resolve this contradiction is to realize that someone else is being addressed here other than Nineveh, right? Because we have Nineveh mentioned at the very beginning, but what other nation is mentioned in this section? Judah. So what, we, what we've really got are words of declaration to two different nations, some to Assyria, some to Judah. And this makes sense of, of what we see here. Now remember, Judah still exists at this time. Israel's been um, removed. Israel fell in 722 to 721 BC, but Judah will continue to exist for another 150 years. It will last till 587 to 586 BC. Judah was at times subject to Assyria, but Judah also fought against Assyria. You may remember, as an example, a certain righteous king who fought against Assyria. He was besieged in Jerusalem and then miraculously delivered by God. Which king was that? Hezekiah. Remember, the general and king of Assyria had actually boasted against Yahweh and said, your gods are not going to be able to save you. Your king is not going to be able to save you. And Hezekiah brought those boasts into the temple of God, or brought those boasts before God, and he said, hear his threats and vindicate us. Well, God did. Even though, or God did as the enemies were blaspheming him. So we've got two nations being addressed in this section. And that, I think, will help us make sense of it. Look back at verse 11. And when God says, and when God prophesies there and points out one who plotted evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor, to which nation is he speaking? Yeah, this is Nineveh, Assyria. It says, from you came that wicked counselor. But, and he says, you have devised evil plans against me. But what does God promise regarding these plans? How successful are these plans going to be? They'll be come to, they, they will be cut off. Their plans will come to nothing. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it, verse 9. Assyria and your king, whatever you devise against the Lord, it will come to nothing. God addresses Judah in verses 12 to 13. As we pointed out, God promises to Judah restoration, or maybe better to say, a removal of oppression. Verse 12 um, though they must mean Assyria here, though, yet, though they are at full strength and likewise many, even so they will be cut off and pass away. Though I have afflicted you with Assyria, I will afflict you no longer. I will break his yoke bar from upon you and I will tear off your shackles. I will remove the oppression from you, Judah. What does God promise about Assyria in verse 14? Uh, you're going to say something, Gabe? Yeah, 
Yeah. These are promises of destruction. I will cut off your name. I will cut off your idols. There's perhaps here a specific prophecy to the king of Assyria, not just to the nation. You will be destroyed, but also you, you king, your line will be destroyed. And all your gods will will be destroyed. And then God promises again something to Judah. He tells them to celebrate because their wicked enemy will be completely destroyed. Never again will the wicked one pass through you. He is cut off completely. All right, let's pause and interpret just a little bit based off of these two chapters, I mean, these two sections. How does the second half of chapter one relate to the first half of chapter one? Exactly. We saw in the beginning what kind of God God is, what he does to those who fear him, and what he does to those who are his enemies. And then we see that manifest specifically in history. He says, Judah, you fear me? I'm going to protect you. I'm going to remove the oppression from you. Assyria, you're my enemy. I'm going to completely destroy you. So we're seeing the specific application of God's character and how he reacts to his enemies. This first chapter really sets the stage for the rest of the book. Nineveh and Judah are reminded of God's character, and then they receive announcement broadly of what God will do. The rest of the book, though, is going to really focus on Nineveh and Assyria. So let's now look at the rest of the book in chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 to 5. This is the next section I want us to observe. What does God have more to say about Nineveh and Assyria. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are colored red. The warriors are dressed in scarlet, The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel when he is prepared to march, and the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall, and the mantlet is set up. Okay, let's observe. God is speaking to Nineveh again here. The one who scatters has come up against you. What does God command a Nineveh to do? Verse 1. What does he command? That's right. Prepare your defenses. Get ready for battle, Nineveh. Battle is coming to you says, get ready. What does God promise in verse 2? Exactly. Restore the splendor of Jacob. Restore the splendor of Israel. This is similar to what he said in chapter 1. I think this is the last reference we have to Judah or Israel in this book. But he says, I, prepare your defenses, but no, I'm going to restore, I'm going to restore Israel's uh, splendor. 
And then we have an image in verse 3. Uh, think of the details there that are given there. What is the image we get? First of all, what is depicted? got soldiers depicted, right? We've got military men. But how would you describe their depiction? They're mighty men, colored red, dressed in scarlet, flashing steel. Their cypress spears are brandished. What kind of picture of soldiers is that? Yeah, they look splendid and mighty. They look like a, a, a glorious group. But then look at the next image. It's also an image of soldiers. But what is the sense in this image? Yeah, soon. Yeah, rushing, chaos. You see words like wildly. They're dashing to and fro. They're stumbling. They're hurrying. Because battle has come. They've got to man the walls. They aren't that splendid-looking army that we see in verse 3. They're a panicked army. They are an army that is hurrying for the defense. By the way, if you're wondering what a mantelet is in verse 5, mantelet is a portable barrier for archers and inf infantry to use um, for cover when they're besieging a city. It's kind of like a, a wall or a box that you can transport and you can't be hit by arrows or projectiles. Anyways, so we have these images. The defenders of Nineveh are called to ready themselves. We see them doing so, but let's now look at verses 6 to 13. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away, and her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves, beating on their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees knocking. Also anguish is in the whole body and all their faces are grown pale. Where is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, lioness, and lion's, cu lion's cub prowled with nothing to disturb them? The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lionesses, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Okay, this section is dominated by two main images. The first image appears in verses 6 to 10. And it's mentioned specifically in verse 6 to 8. What is the image used to describe what will happen to Nineveh? They're going to be taken over, but he's using an image to describe something about that conquest. Yeah, Roy. There's this water image. If you go back to verse 6, it says, The gates of the river are opened, and the palace is dissolved. And then in um, verse 8, Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. So there's this image of rushing water, uh, of water suddenly being opened up and water fleeing. 
Now, just as a dammed up river suddenly rushes and a pool of water bursts through a barrier, this pool of water in Nineveh bursts through a barrier, what metaphorically is going to depart Nineveh rapidly like rushing water? In verses 6 to 10. Okay, the things, uh, things that were met by the waters are carried away. But he mentions specifically some things being carried away, as if by the water. What's being carried away? Yes, silver and gold. Um, the, the palace is stripped. Um, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no limit to our treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. All the wealth is just carried away rapidly as if the water itself was carrying it out. And what's the state of Nineveh in verse 10 after this rushing water has gone through? It's ruined. It's desolate. It's empty. It's like you had this pool that was all nice and sealed in the city, and then the barrier breaks, it rushes through, carries away everything. People are saying, stop, stop, they're trying to hold it back, but you can't. It's water. It's just going to keep on rushing. And all the wealth is carried away from the city. It's left empty. It's desolate. Now remember that Nineveh was quite a splendid city at this time. It had been beautified with all the wealth obtained from the conquered peoples and the subjugated peoples and the tribute of kings. It was a glorious city. But he says all that wealth is going to disappear, like water carrying it away. Now there's another image in the second half here of this section. What image appears in verses 11 to 13? It's all about what creature? The lions, right? It's the image of a lion's den. Verse 11 asks where this lion's secure den and the hunting grounds are. Now, if he's asking that question, what does that indicate has happened? What happened to the lion's den and the hunting grounds? They're gone. They've disappeared. They're no longer secure. They've been devastated. Verse 12 describes how the lion formerly killed enough For his lionesses and his cubs and his lair was filled with prey and with flesh, with torn flesh. But God says he is against you. And again, looking at the context, that would be the lion. He's against the lion in verse 13. And what does God promise to cut off from the you? A couple things. I will cut off. I will burn up. I will get rid of your prey. You will no longer have prey. What else? I'll get rid of your messengers. Their voices will not be heard. I'll get rid of your chariots. And I'll get rid of the young lions. The young lions will be cut off. All right. So let's just interpret a little bit based on that lion image. What is this image of the lion and the lion's den describing regarding Assyria?
God is asking Nineveh, where's the lion's den? And then he makes these promises regarding the lion. What is he really saying about Assyria? Well, who is the lion? Yeah, Ron. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. The lion's den is Assyria, or is Nineveh, or you could say even Assyria. So who's the lion? The lion is Assyria, and that makes sense, right? Because Assyria is the dominant, conquering nation. It's been plundering, it's been attacking, it's been like a lion, tearing prey, tearing flesh, bringing it back to the cubs, bringing it back to the lionesses, the families of Assyria, the wives and children of Assyria. He says, that's what you were. But now your lion's den is compromised. Now your hunting grounds have been cut off. Here's what I'm going to do. I am against you, O lion of Assyria. I will destroy your military might, your chariots. I will destroy your young lions. I will destroy your, your young men who fight for you. I'll get rid of your messengers, and I'll make it so that you no longer have any prey. So you can see how these two images in the passage are related, right? The lion that tore for itself obtained flesh for itself, obtained wealth for itself, if we're not speaking metaphorically, it's going to lose it all. The one who previously obtained greatness through conquest was now going to be desolated and conquered. The predator of Syria would now be hunted. By the way, I see the screen's doing the flickering thing again. I apologize about that. We thought that it was fixed, but I can always see it here. This one doesn't seem to flicker as much. All right, now let's move on to the final chapter. I've seen some prophecies regarding Assyria. Let's look at the last set of words that God has for Nineveh and Assyria. So chapter 3, we'll look at the, the section from verses 1 to 7. Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, Horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Okay. God pronounces woe on a bloody city that is full of lies and pillage and whose prey never departs. What image is given in verses 2 to 3? What is described there? Yeah, Roy. Well, I don't know if we want to say that just yet that this is the city of Nineveh or a city, but certainly we have a picture of battle. And what's very noticeable about this battle? I think you're alluding to it, Roy. We have something mentioned here that was not mentioned before. 
dead bodies, right? Corpses. This is a bloody battle that has resulted in the death of many. There are so many corpses that people are stumbling over the corpses. Now the reason for the preceding verses, or a reason for the preceding verses is given in verse 4. What is the reason? All this because, because why? Yeah, it says because of the harlotry, but we're not talking about physical harlotry here. We're talking about a spiritual harlotry because we can see that he says the mistress of sorceries who sells nations by her harlotries. We're talking more than physical immorality here. We're talking about a spiritual immorality that affects nations. He says it is that that is um, providing reason for what we see in the preceding verses. And is this harlotry. And notice what God promises to bring about upon Nineveh as a result. He continues to utilize the image of a harlot or a prostitute and says that he will lift up her skirts over her face and expose the whore's vile disgrace and nakedness to all the nations who will in turn abandon her. They will run from her. There will be no one to comfort her. It's a pretty startling image of shame and desolation. Now, Quick interpretive question. Is this image of battle and death in verses 2 to 3 a prophecy of what will happen to Nineveh in judgment? Or is this a depiction of what Nineveh has already done to the other nations? I think that's a difficult question to answer. <laughs> what are you going to say, Rob? Right, and I, I do think that's key to understanding this, Rob. You point out that understanding who, who the whore is, that will relate to identifying what 2 verses 2 to 3 is talking about. I think we can say with relative confidence that the adulteress, or the one's adulteries, or, I'm sorry, the harlot, in verse 4 is Assyria. Because again, this, this whole prophecy is against Nineveh, and he says, behold, I am against you. And in verse 7 it says, Nineveh is devastated. So we're talking, the, the one who's whoring's, are apparent in verse 4 is Nineveh. But there are two ways that we can take verses 2 to 3, and I'm not necessarily going to totally settle that issue. You could say that, and I think maybe some of you are already thinking this, this is a prophecy of what will happen to Assyria because of her whorings. Because you are an idolatrous nation and you've been selling your spiritual adultery, you've been influencing other nations with your spiritual adultery, here's what's going to come upon you. But you could also interpret it as, well, no, it's that idolatry that's been motivating their conquest, their evil, bloody conquest. And this would fit with verse 1, where he says, Woe to the bloody city, completely full of, li completely full of lies and pillage, her prey never departs. She's always been doing this to people. This is what she's done to her prey, because she thinks this is how she's going to satisfy her gods, or her gods are totally good with this. I favor the latter interpretation, but I'm not going to be too dogmatic about that. Certainly we know that God is indicting Nineveh and Assyria for their spiritual harlotry and for their bloodiness. And they are going to be judged because of that. By the way, as I've mentioned in previous lessons, Assyria is known infamously in history for its brutality, for its cruelty. Archaeologists have discovered images of battle on the walls of the palaces that used to be in Nineveh. And these engravings include depictions of enemy soldiers being impaled on pikes 
and captives being flayed alive while their families watch. This is a very brutal people. Or they've been very brutal as conquerors. And certainly just conquering other peoples in the first place is, is an issue. All right. Next section. Let's look at verses 8 to 11. God has promised to judge, to shame, to expose this nation. But let's see what he says next. Are you better than no Amman, which was situated by the waters of the Nile, with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limits. Put and Lubim were among her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound with fetters. You too will become drunk. You too will be hidden. You too will search for a refuge from the enemy. Okay, quick observations. Even if you don't recognize the name Noamon, where must this city be, this place be, according to the details of this passage? It's got to be in Egypt, because it mentions the Nile, and it mentions Ethiopia, and it mentions Egypt. This is someplace in Egypt. Actually, Noamon was another name for the capital of Egypt, Thebes. Now recall, Egypt had different capitals, but this was the capital around this time. Recall that Assyria conquered Egypt, which means they also conquered Thebes. Thebes was devastated, as were her people. But notice the question from God in verse 8. Are you better than Noamon? What's the expected answer? No, you're not. You're not any better. Thebes was well defended. It was well positioned. It had the sea for part of its walls, or it had water as part of its walls. She was well supported. She had many armies to protect her, but she was brought down. She was destroyed. God says the same will happen to you, Nineveh. You are no better. You will be plundered too. You will go into captivity too. You will have your children dashed to pieces. You will have your great men taken as prisoners and slaves. You're not any better defended, and you're certainly not any better behaved. All right, one more section, verses 12 to 19. Verse 12, all your fortifications are fig trees with a ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You have increased your traitors more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locust. Your marshals are like the hordes of grasshoppers. Settling in the stone walls on a cold day, the sun rises and they flee. And the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains. And there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? All right, this is the last word from God in this prophecy. Verses 12 to 13 describe the state of Nineveh's defenses from God's perspective. Nineveh is like a fig tree with ripe fruit. When you shake the tree, the figs just easily drop off. 
They're like a city defended by women. No offense, ladies. But women were not trained to fight in those days, nor were they known for being valiant. So to be defended by women was a very dangerous thing. Nineveh is like a city with its gates wide open. In other words, how secure is Nineveh? It's completely vulnerable. Whatever their defenses look like to human eyes, from God's perspective, they are completely exposed. It's like their gates are wide open. You just shake the walls a tiny bit and everything falls apart. They're like a fig tree with the figs just drop off so easily. Now, what does God, Nineveh, what does God command Nineveh to do in verses 14 to 15? Like he said earlier, Get ready for battle. Prepare your defenses. Build up that wall. Get your soldiers ready. And yet, what does God promise in verses 14 and 19? You can get your defenses ready, but it's not going to matter. You're still going to be destroyed. Assyria and its people will be destroyed. There's this another interesting image in verses 15 to 17, one of locusts and grasshoppers. He says, you multiply yourself, um, he, he says, you've got, you've got these grasshoppers. What do these bugs represent? He tells us specifically, your guardsmen are like locusts. Your marshals are like the hordes of grasshoppers. You can maybe say that the traders that they've increased are also like uh, locusts. But there's a big problem being defended by locusts or being defended by grasshoppers. And it's not that they're small and be squished. But locusts and grasshoppers are constantly on the move. They get up and fly away at a moment's notice. He says, your defenders are like locusts that have settled in on the cool stone, the stone of the walls, but as soon as the sun comes up, they'll all fly away. They'll disappear, and you'll be completely undefended. Your defenses will disappear in a flash, and no one will be able to find them. Notice the future state of Nineveh's citizens in verse 18. Both shepherds and nobles are lying down, scattered with no one to regather them. Now, this statement is made specifically to the king of Assyria. And if no one is around to regather the people, to rally, to lead them, what's happened to the king? The king is vulnerable, and there's a prediction made about the king if people... If the people of Assyria will have no one to regather them, what's happened to the king? He's gone. He's either killed or captured. Remember, God had said something similar to Israel after Saul, after he prophesied that Saul would die. He says, I saw all Israel scattered with no one to lead them. He said, the reason I saw that is because the king will die. Saul, you will die. Same thing here. He says, the king is going to be killed or captured. The people will be left leaderless. Verse 19 says, finally, there is no cure or relief for you. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. That is, they will rejoice, they will applaud when they see what happens to you. And notice the reason at the end of verse 19. Another rhetorical question. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? What's the implied answer? No one. There is no one who has not experienced your evil. There is no one who has not felt your evil influence, your continual evil influence. That's why this is all going to happen to you. And that's where the prophecy ends. So let's summarize what we've seen. 
in chapter 1. We saw God's vengeance on evil and his great power described. We saw that his power totally destroys the guilty, but it defends those who seek God for refuge. We then saw how God's character and power were going to manifest themselves, specifically destruction for Assyria, but deliverance for Judah. And then in chapter 2, we saw God calling Nineveh to defend itself. But the images then showed, the images that came afterwards showed that the defense was pointless. There would be no stopping the wealth escaping from Nineveh like a river, nor is there a way to secure the lion's den or the hunting grounds from being devastated. In chapter 3, we saw the bloodiness and the spiritual harlotry of Nineveh highlighted and condemned. God promises to expose and shame the spiritually immoral city. God again called on the city to defend itself, but again showed that there would be nothing that would stop the city from being overtaken and destroyed. The evil Nineveh inflicted on all nations would receive recompense. Now let's ask some interpretive questions. God is not being serious when he tells Nineveh to defend itself. How could we describe these commands of God? Yeah, Craig. Yeah, I think that there's definitely a warning there. But he also says that it's going to be useless. So if you're commanding someone to do something that's ultimately going to be useless, what's the sense? Um, what kind of a feeling do you have in that command? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's confidence there. Like, get your defenses ready. You're not going to be able to do anything. But there's also a, a kind of a sarcastic or an ironic quality to those commands, I think maybe for, due to that confidence. Yeah, get your defenses ready. But, you know, know it's going to be useless. It's a kind of a, an irony or a sarcasm to those commands. Total confidence in God and his, uh, what he's going to do. Now, you've seen this whole book, and, and you saw the summary on the previous slide. What are the main ideas or themes repeated in this book? What's one of them? Yeah, God judges evil, right? He judges it completely, totally, and nothing can stop it. What else? God's judgment is emphasized. Danny, something else? Yeah, God's power. God is going to totally bring to pass his judgment. He has the power to execute his vengeance. What else? So this idea of get your defenses ready. Yeah. Yeah, total sovereignty, right? His sovereignty is emphasized here. We could point to some other things as well. Just to summarize some of them, God judges sins to the uttermost. He will eventually destroy and disgrace his enemies. God protects, vindicates, and avenges those that fear him, that call upon him. Judah, you will be restored. Israel, your glory will be restored. Reversal, the plunderer becomes the plundered. The lion becomes the prey. The proud is brought low. We also see that planning or making preparation to fight against God or escape his judgment, is totally useless. I feel like this is perhaps the strongest theme, the most emphasized theme in this book. If you want to remember the book of Nahum, if I could help you maybe with one phrase, it's simply this. 
resistance is futile. When God's judgment comes, your resistance is futile. Evil will never escape God's judgment. God is sovereignly going to bring that to pass. Now this oracle is addressed to Assyria. What then was Nahum's purpose in proclaiming this message of judgment to Assyria, to Nineveh? Why give this word? It's a testament to God's power, for sure. Yes? Well, it's interesting that you mention that. You say you notice that repentance definitely seems missing from this book. If we go back to the book of Jonah, though, you may remember that when Jonah declared his message to the people of Nineveh, he didn't say anything about repentance. <laughs> he just said, you're going to be judged. Get ready to be judged. But the people did repent, right? It's interesting when you compare these two different books. Jonah did not. He was a half-hearted um, messenger to the people of Nineveh. He didn't want to go, but when he went, he declared, you're all going to be judged. Within a certain amount of time, the whole city is going to be destroyed. They repented, the king, everyone in the city. And then how did God react? He relented of the judgment. The same thing is possible here. Yeah, Ron. Yeah, the same thing is possible here. This message of judgment is not simply to say, look, it's coming upon you, too bad. This was to evoke repentance, just like Jonah's message was. Hang on a second, Ron. However, from what you know from the rest of the scriptures or history, how does Nineveh respond to this message? Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good point that with this prophecy of judgment, even though the previous prophecy of judgment brought about repentance and judgments are given to evoke repentance, there's a predictive quality to this prophecy about how Assyria is going to react. And that's similar to how the prophecies of judgment against Israel were also, right? He tells Israel specifically, you need to repent, but he also predicts that that's not what they're going to do. And, of course, the judgment comes to pass. And that's what happens to Assyria. Assyria does not repent. Nineveh does not repent. They do not respond to this message from Nahum. God knew that they weren't going to respond. Just to give you the historical details, in 627 B.C., within a few decades of this prophecy, a series of civil wars and rebellions broke out in the Assyrian Empire. The Babylonian Nabopolassar gained control of the area of Babylonia, and later laid siege to the city of Nineveh. He conquered it in 612 BC with an assault that included intense house-to-house -house fighting. There was even a, a report that a flood of the river was part of the reason that they were able to assault the city because the flood was so large that it damaged the defenses. 
After victory, the Babylonians plundered the city and then razed it to the ground. The city's remaining inhabitants were massacred or deported. And to this day, Nineveh is a ruin, though the city of Mosul is not too far away. Nabopolassar, with the help of the Medes, continued to dismantle the Assyrian Empire until finally Nabopolassar's son, Nebuchadnezzar II, that is the Nebuchadnezzar of the Scriptures, defeated the last Assyrian and Egyptian resistance at the Battle of Charchemish in 605 BC. Assyria was then officially no more. Therefore, when we can see when Nineveh repented under Jonah, that generation experienced merciful salvation. But when Nineveh refused to repent in response to the message of Nahum, that generation experienced total and just destruction. But perhaps the question still lingers in your mind, how can this be? How can God condemn and judge Assyria for what it did to the other nations when God himself raised up Assyria and used Assyria to conquer those other nations and inflict the brutal judgment on them? How can God do that? Well, part of the answer to this surely has to do with how Assyria went going about God's uh, ordained judgment. Assyria certainly did not give glory to God when it conquered these other peoples, nor was it careful to obey God's commands. But you might say, but wasn't that part of the judgment? Wasn't their sinfulness and brutality part of the judgment on those other nations? Well, there's another part to the answer. And it's this. God is just. And though he ordains evil and he uses evil to accomplish his purposes, God is not himself evil, nor does he cause anyone to commit evil. God is very explicit about this in the scriptures. Therefore, though God ordained a serious evil sinful brutality as a judgment on the other nations, God was not responsible for that evil. Assyria was responsible, and therefore God was just in bringing judgment on Assyria. Our minds may struggle with the tension of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, but the Bible makes clear that God is always holy, just, and sovereign. The responsibility for evil is never God. But God did not violate his justice by bringing this judgment or by pronouncing this judgment on Assyria. We only have two minutes, so let me briefly turn to our last topic, which is application. So what? Why should we care this, that this judgment was revealed to Assyria through God's prophet Nahum, and then when it was unheeded, it came to pass? We're not Assyria, after all. Well, many of you already see the connection. It's similar to what we've seen in the last few lessons. The same holy God who judged Nineveh for sin is the same God who will judge all men for sin. The New Testament describes the dangers that we too are under from God's wrath. Romans 2.5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, an unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Hebrews 10 26 to 27. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. All of us will face the judgment of God, either when we die or when Christ comes back. And all human preparations for this judgment, like Nineveh's preparations, will be useless. You cannot keep yourself from dying. You cannot buy your way out. You cannot store up enough supposed good works or prayers to protect you or to save you. You cannot hide behind your family or your church. Like Assyria, you will be utterly exposed by God 
and the sinfulness of your heart will be put on display. If your righteousness is anything less than God's standard, which is perfection, you will be disowned by God and then thrown into the lake of fire forever. There is no hiding from or escaping God's judgment. There is no defense. His judgment will find you. As God said, God will never leave the guiltless unpunished. He's too just and too holy for that. So what hope is there for any of us? Well, as we said, it's only in the Savior provided by God. The only salvation, the only rescue from God is the one that God provided. Because God himself said in Nahum 1, I am a strong tower to those who seek refuge in me. He is the rock on which if a wise man builds, when the storm and flood of God's judgment comes, the house stands firm. And how can one make God his refuge and his savior? You do as Jesus and the prophets commanded. Repent of your sins. Turn back from your own way. Trust in Jesus' righteousness alone. Follow after Jesus. Commit your whole life to no longer doing the will of your flesh, but the will of God, starting with baptism. The only escape from God's judgment is the way that God provided Jesus. This is God's message to us. This is the message that we need to take to the world. Some questions for you to meditate on as we close. When God's judgment comes, will you be protected or will you be destroyed? How do you know? In what defense do you place your hope? If it's anything other than the righteous sacrifice of Christ on your behalf, your hope is as useless as Nineveh's walls. Are you showing the fruits of repentance in your life, putting off the patterns of sin and putting on the patterns of righteousness? Because these will show whether you truly believe in Jesus. Do you trust God to avenge evil so that you don't have to seek your own vengeance? And do you continually thank and praise God for rescuing you from the judgment that you, like Nineveh, so plainly deserved? That's all for this week. Next week, we take a step back and talk about the Bible's prophecies in general. Lots of people make predictions today, and some of them come true. Are the Bible's fulfilled prophecies really all that special? We'll take a look at that question next week. Let's pray.